It's uh, page 1014 from these Bibles in the pews. This summer I've been uh, bringing a series of messages from uh, 1 Peter, and now we're going to finish chapter 1. So I begin reading in verse 22. Hear God's word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Last week, uh, if you were here, I mentioned that if you seem overwhelmed or confused by the, the overall message of the Bible... And if you've not read much of the Bible, it can be uh, an overwhelming book, something so large, written by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. Um, there's two main messages, two basic messages of the Bible. You can essentially boil it all down to these two. The first message is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the first message there, these two simple statements, the first receive the gift of forgiveness of sins through believing in Jesus. But the second, to those who have believed, to those who have been forgiven, the second statement would be, live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, those two statements always have to be in that order because you cannot live a life worthy of the gospel until you have believed the message about Jesus and been saved by it. And I made the comment, we live from life, not to life. We live worthy of the gospel because we've received the gift of life, not in order to get the gift of life. Our life for God is a gift returned for his far greater gift to us. I mentioned when I started this several weeks ago with First Peter that one of the books I'm, I'm using in, in study and in references is R.C. Sproul's book on, on First Peter. Uh, they're short little chapters, and I assume they are portions of sermons that he preached at some time on this. But he mentions in that book that one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation, one of the rallying cries, was the two-word Latin phrase, Coram Deo, which means uh, before the face of God or in the presence of God. The idea that was being described by that phrase by the Reformers was that even though God's face is not visible to us right now, we should live every second of our lives before his face, aware that we are in his presence. So we cannot see him, but he sees us, and we should be conscious of that all the time. Uh, on another subject, do you, do you ever find yourself conscious of someone who's watching you do something, someone you respect or hold in high regard? Uh, one Sunday, a couple of years ago, I, I uh, was in here before the service, and as the service started, I saw Dr. Paul Tripp and his wife. And he had preached here some years ago, and many of you have read his books or heard him, a very much in-demand speaker and writer and counselor across the country. 
And I walked up to him. I said, I didn't know you were going to be here today. He said, yeah, we're, we're driving through. And this was their son, Darnay's, one of his last Sundays here. Well, I found myself all during the service with the realization, well, Paul trips here. What, wonder what, Paul's, what would Paul do? You know, I'm thinking about that. I was conscious of his presence during the service. In fact, Jim, where'd he go? He left. Jim Shipley assured me before the service, since he heard me say that at the first service, not to be intimidated when he's here, but I noticed that he's, he's gone. But we should live with the reality that God sees and he hears everything, every word, in private and in public. Now, the reason I say that is Peter is calling us to live coram Deo, with the realization that we are before the face of God. We're before his face, we're under his authority, and his glory. So let's look at this brief section of scripture as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning uh, on how he says to do this. Look at verse 22. Having pure, well, I read it a moment ago, but having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter tells us that purification of our souls is not only unto obedience, but also by obedience. The more our souls are involved in obedience, the greater the purification that occurs and the more our souls are purified. Some call this not a vicious cycle, but a glorious circle. Obedience feeds purification, purification feeds obedience, and it, a, it is a specific type of obedience, and that is obeying God's word, the truth. The night Jesus was arrested and then put on that mock trial and then later crucified, we have a prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And uh, it's easy to remember where it is. It's John 17. The entire chapter is, is given to that, that prayer. There's one particular verse that has stood out to me for years in that prayer where he's praying for his followers, not only his followers that night, but even us, those that would follow later. In John 17, 17, an easy reference to remember, says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. I memorized it in the King James. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So throughout God's word, it says that it is true. Uh, so the obedience is to the word of God. Now these days, that can present a problem. I have benefited greatly this summer by the writings of Amy Orr Ewing. Now, Amy Orr Ewing is on the faculty, and she's the director of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics in Oxford, England. She's married to an Anglican pastor. She's a very good communicator. She is a very astute student of the Bible. She has, she has a ministry in places you and I will never be. She has done apologetics with the Taliban and uh, with many Middle Easterners, and I'm reading a very brief book by her entitled, Why Trust the Bible. The other day I was reading one of the articles there, and it said, sometimes, she wrote, sometimes people ask me, you don't honestly believe the Bible literally, do you? And she says, this has become an increasingly important question as people are frightened of fundamentalism in the world around us. After 9-11, they think that if people begin to believe what their holy books say, it is a very dangerous thing. To take a religious book literally is perceived as one of the most foolish, ignorant, and misguided things we can do. 
Of course, it is important to remember that it is not the act of believing what a book says or taking it literally that is necessarily dangerous. The danger is determined by the content of the book, right? I'm sorry, I'm still reading her, but I'm, this is why I'm appreciating her writing so much. What will we find when we read? Does the book incite violence? Does it lend itself to a dangerous use? It is not inherently evil to believe what a book says. The danger is dependent on the message. And then she contends with those who says words have no meaning. That's pretty prevalent today also. She says, I would argue that to assert dogmatically that it is impossible for any text to communicate meaning is to be closed-minded. The Christian does not ask a skeptic to naively accept what the Bible says just because we say so. But we ask you to be open-minded enough to read it and ask questions of it, to scrutinize it and see for yourself whether you find it compelling and truthful. That's what the scripture invites us to do, right? That was the purpose of John's writing we saw this past spring. Uh, that, that we may hear of these things and believe. It invites scrutiny. So how does one obey the truth when we're in a culture that hates the idea of objective truth. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the entrance of sin into the world. People do not want truth to be objective because if it is, then it speaks to my life and it's binding on my conscience. I want, my human nature wants, a subjective truth, something that is right or wrong given the situation. Of course, I will always determine that in this situation it's right for me to do what I want to do, and therefore I'll call it right. We, we resist truth. But the purification from our, of our souls comes from the obeying the truth. Now, how can this happen? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. No one comes to the truth apart from the power and the grace of the Spirit of God. And the way to the heart... The way to your heart, guys, is not through your stomach, despite what we've been told. It's through your mind. If you want to reach a heart to affect my heart, you've got to reach my thinking. And I don't, by any means, by any extent, mean to say that it's all cognitive. But the way to our heart is through our mind. We need to know God's truth. Therefore, a mindless Christianity... An anti-academic Christianity, in a good sense of the word, academic, will not result in obedience because it will not have reached the heart because it did not reach the mind. And then it's just sentiment. So what is an indication that this truth has affected our hearts? Well, it's in the, in the outgrowth of love toward other people. Verse 23. End of 22 says, Love one earnestly from a pure heart. If you have trouble loving other people, this message is for you. If you feel at odds, perhaps with another person or other people who claim to know Christ, this message is for you. The purifying effect of the gospel, the good news of Christ, when we come to believe that, we receive the gift of, of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness from God, then we are empowered to do things we could never do on our own. So first he mentions that you in 22, that you love one another, first, that you have a sincere brotherly love. He uses a particular word there, the Greek word, that is general in nature, a brotherly love, that we love other believers because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Then, in the next phrase, he says, earnestly 
love one another from the heart, he moves to another term that's the unconditional love, the the agape type thing. It's not pretended. It's not hypocritical. It's not faked. It's not just play acting or just what we say with no actions. And Peter repeats this throughout his letter in chapter 4. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love love covers a multitude of sins. We need this today. But that is a sign of the work of God's Spirit. Now, I, I want to mention something that if you've been here for several years, you've heard me say before. I can't remember how long ago it was, but it has to do with, with my father. He's been dead for many years, but late in life, very late in life, my father came to believe in Christ as his Savior. He became a Christian. And uh, I had the greatest respect and love for him, um, but that was a miracle. It's a miracle for any of us to come to that, but publicly that was about the last thing I would have thought would have happened. And in the months after that, I uh, watched. I would just, we didn't live in my hometown, but on the occasion when I'd visit, I would just interact with my dad, and I would sit in amazement at changes that were taking place in his thinking. He'd been a lawyer, and maybe it was for that reason, and I'm not trying to sound funny or insulting, but maybe that was why I never heard him do... He never did something my whole life. He never apologized. I never heard him apologize to anybody about anything. So I'm in his office. He was, he'd been a lawyer, and then he became a district judge, and then he went back to practicing law after he lost an election. And I was sitting in his office, and a man came in, another lawyer whose office was down the hall in the same building and he came in and they talked for a few minutes I didn't pay much attention then he left he said Chip you know that fella I don't even remember his name now I said well I've met him before I don't know anything about him he said well the other day it was the first time he and I have spoken in about six years I looked perplexed he said let me tell you what happened he said he said uh, I found out that back in <clears throat> in an election he had he had supported my opponent. Years ago, I found that out, so I just, I just didn't have anything more to do with it. <clears throat> but the other day, I went to his office, and I asked him to forgive me for the way I treated him. Now, that may, that may not sound like a bump in the road to you, but the earth moved under my feet that day, and I said, who told you to do that? He said, nobody told me to do that. That's just what you're supposed to do, isn't it? I knew the Spirit of God told him to do that. And he's done it. We could all bear testimony to, as we come to know Christ and seen things happen that kind of came out that were very unnatural for us. They were supernatural. Do you know the number one reason, so I'm told, and I think it's true, but one of the most um, pervasive reasons why people leave one church and go to another? Now, I'm talking about people that are church members, professing Christians, and especially here in the South. No one ever says this. <laughs> no one. And I've been in interviews receiving members. I've been in talking to people after they leave. I've never had anybody admit to this. But I think it's probably true. The number one reason is unresolved conflict. It's usually not the preaching or the programs or the youth ministry or children's something. It usually has to do with someone 
there's a bridge burning and somebody doesn't want to put it out and rebuild it. Now, if there's any degree of truth in that, we need this. We need this teaching for two reasons. One, for our own sake and peace within the body, but this is the main apologetic. This is the main sign that Jesus said unbelievers would recognize Christ's followers would be, well, let me tell it to you. This is where Peter heard it. This is where Peter got this teaching. All through Jesus' ministry, as Peter had been with him for at least two years, maybe longer, maybe two and a half during the public ministry, but on the night Jesus would later be arrested, uh, we have what's called the upper room discourse in John chapter 13, 14, 15, where Jesus gives his final extensive teaching to his 12 disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper, as we will observe in a few moments, and he, he gives a visual lesson to them they would never forget. He washes their feet. You remember, he washes their feet to demonstrate servanthood. And then at the end of that lesson, he says something that you would not have expected. He says, if you're my followers, then you will, you would think, they were thinking, wash my feet, speaking of himself. But he says, you'll wash one another's feet. And then he says in the same chapter, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's still profound. I've been reading that verse since I was about 15 years old. By this, they will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So how are we to love one another? How can we have the power to love one another? Well, let's move on to verse 23. He mentions being reborn, regenerated. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but a imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Regeneration. Regeneration or rebirth, it's where we are dead spiritually. That is the way we are born into this life. According to Ephesians, we are, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We may look very much alive. We may feel very much alive, but spiritually it means we are spiritually cut off from God. And regeneration is when God gives us life. He breathes life into us in the same way that he breathed the breath of life into the man in, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam, from the, the word means from the ground, Adam. And so he gives us life, that is regeneration. He does not give us the potential to be regenerated. He gives us life. Some people see conversion as like you're floundering around in the ocean, about to drown, and a ship comes by. God's on that ship, and you cry out for help, I'm, help, I'm drowning, and he tosses you the life, the life buoy, and you grab a hold of it through faith, and therefore you're saved. It, it makes a point, but a clearer point, and all illustrations break down, but the better one would be, you're not on the surface floundering, you're a corpse on the bottom. And God reaches down, and he gives you life to respond. And even then in responding, you believe, you grab the life buoy, so to speak. You believe in Christ. When I first came to Macon, I ministered to college students at Mercer for about four years and got to know many students, still have contact with some of them to this day. They live all over the country. There was a girl named Leslie. Leslie, everybody would joke around with her because she came across as kind of a 
kind of an airhead, the lights are on but nobody's at home kind of thing, you know, that's, that was Leslie. If you got in a conversation uh, apart from the crowd, you could tell she was a very deep thinker. One day I was, on a Friday afternoon, I think it was, I saw her in our bookstore that we had at that time, and I went in and talked to her, and she, uh, she had some books she was buying. And I said, Martha, look at what you're buying. And she said, no. And, and one was by a Puritan, big, thick book, by Stephen Charnock on the attributes of God. This wasn't Max Licato, you know, 10 easy. Okay, this was, and then she had Martin Luther, The Bondage of the Will, another thick book. I said, what, what interests you in these? <clears throat> and she said, I was looking through the entrance here, the table of contents, and Luther says that regeneration precedes conversion. And I've come to realize that is a very important distinction in, in things we talk about with God. Did you get that? Regeneration precedes conversion. That is that God gives rebirth. He regenerates a spiritually dead person before we respond in faith and repentance. You must say, well, how does that affect what I do? Well, it gives us a right understanding because regeneration is the beginning of the Christian life. It is God's work. You have no activity in it. Back to R.C. Sproul again. He calls that a monergistic work. One person, and the one person is God, is the one who regenerates. But that begins a synergistic work, a joint venture between you and God that we're not involved in the new birth, but we are in the process of growing in Christ. That's what's being admonished here through our obedience. And then Peter quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Peter was alive. And he, this, this quotation is a contrast between the temporary reality of nature, of human life and plant life and and animal life, and the permanence of God and God's Word. He says, all flesh is like grass. You and me, we're like grass in the respect that we are here and then we're gone. We are here just for a brief time. But God's Word, on the other hand, as he describes it here, it is life-giving. God's Word is the seed of life sown. It's abiding. It's enduring. It is not subject to decay or change. And so your physical life, my physical life, is no more permanent than the grass in your yard, if you have grass. Some of you are blessed not to have grass. You live in places that... But God's Word is timeless and it's enduring. It's, it's not saying our lives are not important. It's just that they're temporary. If I passed out a sheet of paper today, some of you could answer this question, but most of us could not. And that is, write down the full names of your great-grandparents. Not their last names. Could you do that? The full names of your great-grandparents. Guess what? Two generations from now, they won't know yours either, probably. That's the truth of what this is saying. We are just here, we have our day, and then we are gone. It's temporary. This is the good news, he finishes in verse 25, that was preached to you. If you've come here to this church, you will hear us from the pulpit and in Sunday school classes refer to the, the gospel as the bad news, good news. The bad news, as I've already mentioned, is that through our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. God gave them a, uh, 
a prohibition. And he said, you can eat from any tree here in this garden, but from that one tree, don't eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did eat of it. They died spiritually. They lived physically for a long, long time after that. But suddenly that relationship they'd had with God, where they literally walked and talked with him, was broken. Spiritual death. But God, even at that time, gave a prophecy about a redeemer who would come later. And so even with Adam and Eve, we see it with the birth of their, their firstborn and their secondborn. They were anticipating that the one who would be born would be that redeemer, that fulfillment of the one God had said would come. So we have all these prophecies through the Old Testament, over 300 about the Messiah that would come. And Jesus came, and you can, if you don't know this, you can go almost line by line through those prophecies from Malachi and, and from Isaiah and from Jeremiah and from Zechariah and others, and you can see these prophecies fulfilled in his life, things that were out of his control, like how he died and what the Roman soldiers did to him. For those that say, well, he knew the prophecies and then he aligned his life with them, I don't think you could control what Roman soldiers did to you and how you would die, and all that's prophesied. And Christ said, always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. And then he allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute, as a substitute, and God, as Jesus was on that cross, he took, he took the burden of sin and he put that on Jesus and he punished Jesus in the place of others and he died fully. He died, he died spiritually on the cross when he was separated from God. He died physically moments later. Three days later, he rose from the dead and the last command he gave to his followers was to go into all the world and make disciples, to tell people what he had done. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and we believe what the Bible teaches, that he will return one day to take his own to be with him, and we will be there forever. Sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? But it's truth. It's truth. So how do we have that forgiveness? Through faith and repentance, we believe that Christ was the Redeemer, that yes, I have a problem. I'm, I've committed crimes against God. I've sinned against him in my thought, my words, my deeds, and what I do and what I choose not to do, what I neglect. And so I believe that what Jesus did and that he paid for my sins. I'm made a new creature then. Person's made new and we are then given a capacity to begin to love in ways we couldn't love before. We're given a capacity to, to care for God's people, to care for his word, to, to desire to pray, to desire to know his word. That's the bad news, good news. And what are preachers to preach? Verse 25, that we are to preach God's word. Not, if you're in a church, you hear a preacher like right now or other places, it's not primarily about, should not be about the latest news or my own personal opinions. The preacher is to preach God's living and abiding word. The reformers back hundreds of years ago believed in the simplicity of the preach word. Just to open the text and say, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to your life and to the world around us? It bears testimony that it teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains in righteousness. It is a mystical task. Preaching, the preaching and hearing of God's word is a supernatural, mystical task. It always amazes me that I can preach and there would be two people sitting here and one, their eyes are open. The Spirit of God uses that. In some cases, he brings them from spiritual death to life and another person hears the same thing may be seated next to them, and it's in one ear and out the other. It's almost inexplicable. 
400 years ago, John Calvin made this remark about preaching. He said, It is certain that if we come to church, we shall not hear only a mortal man speaking, but we shall feel that God is speaking to our souls, that he is the teacher. He so touches us that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. God calls us to him as if he had his mouth open and we saw him there in person. Martin Luther said, in preaching, the voice of the preacher becomes the voice of God. What He's not talking about some authoritarian nutcase in the pulpit. We're talking about God's word coming through faithfully when his word is preached. I have been in services and heard the word preached, and it's, it's as though no one else was there. And I may not have even known the preacher, and I knew God was speaking right to my heart. It's like... I am right where God wanted me, and he is speaking to me right now. That's what Luther was describing. That's why. That's why your presence, your presence in corporate worship, this is one of many reasons, but your presence in corporate worship is so important because you don't know when God's Spirit might move. And I want to appeal to you as parents to have teenagers, young people, and I'll say, where's Johnny? Well, he stayed out last night. I let him sleep in. You let him miss school if he stays up late the night before? Well, he doesn't really like it, so I don't force it on him. I don't want to turn him against the church. You let him miss school because he doesn't like it? Here's my point. What might happen had he been there? And he missed it because he wasn't. I mean, I can remember where I was sitting at times as a teenager when God got a hold of my heart. had nothing to do with my mother or father or anything like that. It was God. So I want to appeal to you. Don't take lightly your presence in worship. Don't take lightly missing it. I know there are providential reasons. There are hindrances. There are things. That, but to make a habitual practice, well, I'm just going to miss it. I'll go to youth group tonight. It's not the same. I'll listen to it on the, on the iPod. It's not the same. It's not the same because, it, it, you know, this week when LeBron James signed the contract to go back to Cleveland and leave Miami and play for the Cavaliers, do you know that the season tickets for next season sold out in eight hours? Eight hours? Why? We're months away from, when's the season begin? Close to Thanksgiving or Christmas? Why? Anticipation. What? I want to be there. What might happen? It's the same thing about the preaching of God's Word. That's why in our Confession of Faith and in our, uh, the Directory of Worship with the Confession of Faith, it says the first step in reverence is your presence. It's the presence to be there. What might God do? So I want you to attend to the preaching and hearing of God's Word with anticipation of what God might do. Let's close with this last question. Is God speaking to you today, right now? Is He calling you to believe, to put your faith in Christ? Is there a sin from which you need to repent, some action you need to do? Let's pray together. Father, now as we come to your table, we ask your blessing and application to our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your order of service, if you will. And our song of preparation is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Let's stand and sing together.